Well, we come to the sixth and final term of communion this evening, and I'll begin by reading that for you. Practically adorning the doctrine of God our Savior by walking in all His commandments and ordinances blamelessly. And I've divided the study up into basically two main points this evening. First main point, uh, what does this sixth term of communion not teach? And then the second main question or point, what does this sixth sixth term of communion teach? So we're going to look at the negative, what it does not teach, and then we'll look at the positive, what it does teach. And so, first of all, what does the sixth term of communion not teach? Well, first of all, this term of communion, which we have just read, does not teach legalism. Legalism is essentially seeking to be righteous before God on the basis of one's own righteousness. Legalism is not a novel uh, heresy because it was refuted even during the time of the prophets and apostles. For example, the Apostle Paul teaches in Galatians 2.16, By the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Legalism is the heretical doctrine which teaches that there is something that man can do in order to make himself more acceptable to God than Christ and Christ's perfect righteousness is able to do. Therefore, legalism destroys both the necessity and the sufficiency of Christ's active obedience. Remember, his active obedience refers to his perfect obedience and keeping all of God's law in an absolute sense. And so, legalism destroys both the necessity and sufficiency of Christ's active obedience as well as Christ's passive obedience. That is, his perfect satisfaction of God's infinite justice through a substitutionary death. And the reason being is that if I can, in the least way, make myself acceptable or more acceptable to God by even one act of righteousness on my part, then Christ's righteousness is really not necessary at all. It becomes unnecessary. If I can make myself more righteous by something I do, it's unnecessary then. Or, secondly, I destroy the necessity and sufficiency of Christ's active obedience and passive obedience, if I can add even one act of righteousness to make Christ's righteousness more complete than what it is. If His righteousness is not complete enough, it's not sufficient enough, but something I do makes it more so, then Christ's righteousness is really not sufficient. However, let me quickly add that a faithful, law-keeping, 
a faithful law-keeping out of love and obedience to Jesus Christ, even in the details of God's moral law, is not legalism. Faithful law-keeping out of love and obedience to Christ not in order to become righteous, not in order to become acceptable, because we love the Lord, because we desire to obey Him, that's not legalism. It's not even legalism if we uh, do so, and we ought to do so, in the details of God's law, the jots and the tittles. We find in Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 19, with regard to what our obedience should be like. Jesus says, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, Till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law, till all be fulfilled. Now notice verse 19. Whosoever therefore shall break one of these least commandments and shall teach men so, he shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And so we declare that legalism is a damnable heresy. Paul teaches in Galatians chapter 1 that if anyone comes teaching another gospel based on grace, if one comes teaching another gospel than the one that I proclaim, Paul says, let him be accursed, let him be damned. It's a damnable heresy, legalism, because it is teaching that Christ Righteousness is not necessary and it's not sufficient. This is the heresy evidenced in Pelagianism and in a consistent and self-conscious Arminianism. Secondly, concerning this uh, sixth term of communion and what it does not teach, the sixth term of communion does not teach perfectionism either. Perfectionism is essentially the heretical doctrine that teaches that man can reach a level of entire sanctification in this life in which he no longer sins. Now, concerning this heresy, this is not a new heresy either. It was around during the time of the apostles as well. And that's the very heresy that the apostle John was attacking in 1 John chapter 1, verses 8-10, through 10, when he says... If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. And just for the record, neither does the scripture teach a corporate sanctification or perfectionism, I should say, a corporate perfectionism for the visible church in this life. There will not be any uh, part of the visible church in this life that reaches a perfect state, whether in life or in doctrine. 
In fact, at times it seems, as we look at this whole issue uh, of uh, growth in Christ and sanctification, and it seems at times that the more you learn, and I think this is generally true, the more that you learn, the more you realize how much more you need to learn. And the more you grow in Christ, the more you realize how much more you have to grow in Christ. That seems to be the rule, if anything. However, let me quickly add again that a sincere love to know and practice the truth to which we have attained already is not perfectionism. A desire simply to to know, to practice the truth which God has revealed to us and to that level that we have yet attained, that's not perfectionism. Philippians chapter 3, verse 16 says this, Nevertheless, whereto we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule, let us mind the same thing. we do believe that when we are glorified, we will be perfected in body and in soul so that we will never again sin against the Lord. And at that particular time, the church corporately will be perfected as well, glorified. This heretical error of perfectionism has been propagated by Pelagians, Socinians, Anabaptists, Wesleyans, and Roman Catholics. For Roman Catholics uh, teach that, we've looked at this earlier, Roman Catholics teach, for example, that uh, those people that they consider to be saints who are canonized and called saints, they reach that place in life where they are actually able to perform more righteousness than God himself requires in the law. And these are called works of supererogation. They also teach that the Romish church cannot err. It is infallible. That it cannot err in its interpretation or cannot err from the truth. And so... Um, Certainly in Rome, there is perfectionism taught. In Wesleyanism, uh, various holiness groups as well, they teach uh, the doctrine of entire sanctification, that you can actually reach a place through a second work of grace where you are no longer sinning. Uh, This this doctrine has infected uh, a lot of other groups, uh, certain Pentecostal groups. That's not true of all Pentecostals. Not true of all charismatics, but it has infected certain groups like that as well. That uh, they believe that is uh, to be the case. Wesleyans would include uh, branches of Methodism as well, uh, historically. <clears throat> the third uh, way in which, or the third uh, point under this. First point, what does the sixth term of communion not teach? The the third thing that it does not teach is uh, that this term of communion does not teach dispensationalism. It talks about, 
in this term of communion, practically or adorning the doctrine of God, our Savior, by walking in all his commandments and ordinances blamelessly. The sixth term of communion does not teach dispensationalism. You see, a consistent and self-conscious dispensationalism teaches that the moral standards of the Old Testament and the moral standards of the New Testament are different. Rather than assuming a continuity from the Old Testament into the New Testament as it relates to God's moral law, there is an assumption of discontinuity. Thus, according to dispensationalism, if the New Testament does not specifically confirm that aspect of God's moral law, uh, that it's binding in the New Testament, it's binding in this age, one ought not to make the assumption that it is binding. One ought to actually assume that it isn't if it's not specifically confirmed in the New Testament. Now, whereas the Jews at the time of the apostles were guilty of carrying everything from the Old Testament into the New Testament era, even all the ceremonial and judicial laws and this type of thing, the Gnostics, another uh, group, uh, heretical group at that time, made a very sharp break between the Old and New Testaments, even to the point of identifying the Old Testament with a different God than that of the New Testament. A very sharp break uh, between the Old and New Testament. Now, I'm not identifying the Gnostics with with dispensationalists, uh, except to point out that in both systems there is a drastic discontinuity in the moral law between the Old and New Testaments. This sixth term of communion makes no such distinction between God's moral commandments in the Old Testament and his moral commandments in the New Testament. This error has been defended by Socinians again, Anabaptists, and uh, today most Baptist churches, most independent churches uh, seem to be in the dispensational camp making this very very, uh, uh, stark Uh, contrast between the moral law of the Old Testament and the moral law of the New Testament. And uh, uh, interesting, uh, there there is even within most Reformed churches now it seems as though areas of the moral law of the Old Testament that that, uh, they do not carry across to the New Testament. Uh, areas related to the duties of the civil magistrate, for example, are not carried across from the from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Uh, the uh, duty under the Old Testament for kings to establish the one true religion as the religion of that nation, not carried across, according to most Reformed churches today, into the New Testament. Uh, or the binding obligation of national covenants not carried across from the Old Testament into the New Testament, just as some examples where the moral law is not carried across. And yet all of our Reformed fathers believed all of those things to be moral in the Old Testament and to be carried across into the New Testament by uh, Christian magistrates. Okay, fourthly, 
This will be the last one under this first main point. The sixth term of communion does not teach antinomianism or lawlessness. There are those false churches that have taught and still teach that Christians are no longer obligated to keep God's law because the Christian is, quote, not under law, but under grace, according to Romans 6.14. We'll look at that uh, in, in a few minutes, that particular verse. <clears throat> Thus, according to antinomianism, antinomianism simply is a Greek word that means uh, against the law, uh, anti and then namos, against the law. Uh, according to antinomianism, a Christian may be uh, guided by God's word, parentheses around guided, may be guided by God's word, but he is really only obligated to follow the leading of the Spirit rather than the moral law of God. This view really promotes the necessity of continuing revelation by the Holy Spirit, thus denying the final authority and sufficiency of the Spirit-inspired scriptures. It really pits as we see, therefore, uh, the Holy Spirit against the Scripture that the Holy Spirit has inspired. Because uh, we can receive direction, we can receive guidance from the Scripture, but uh, when it comes down to it, the antinomian says, uh, I will be led by the Holy Spirit. Uh, and uh, so sometimes that would even lead him to do things that the, that the Scripture would not uh, commend at all or may even be just very clearly contradictory to the Scripture. And so the, term, the sixth term of communion clearly is not teaching antinomianism. So the second main point in, in the form of a question is this then. What does this sixth term of communion actually teach? First of all, the sixth term of communion implies justification by faith alone. Now, it may not be specifically stated, uh, <clears throat> but we must read behind that sixth term of communion. Uh, and uh, as we read the rest of the terms of communion, uh, particularly the, those dealing with uh, the confessional standards, that uh, this, uh, the, this term of com communion implies justification by faith alone. <clears throat> In the sixth term of communion is implied the biblical doctrine that man can only be acceptable before an infinitely holy God on the basis of Christ's perfect righteousness, which righteousness can only be imputed to one by faith in the person, work, and promise of Jesus Christ. It is not faith itself, very important point, it is not faith in and of itself that justifies. It is the object of faith that justifies, namely God looking to Christ and Christ's spotless righteousness alone. That is the object of our justification. God, the object of our faith, I should say, God 
who looks to the righteousness of Christ alone and imputes that righteousness to us. <clears throat> Thus, we might say, in one sense, uh, uh, we are justified by works. Not by our works of righteousness, but by the works of righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ alone. It is His work of righteousness alone that is the ground, that is the basis for our justification, not ours. We can offer nothing to God by reason of our own works. In justification, the believing sinner, and again, a very important distinction between the Reformed view and the Roman Catholic view. In justification, the believing sinner is not made righteous. And on that account, therefore declared righteous. That's the doctrine taught by Rome. That God makes a person righteous by infusing righteousness into them. And then because they are righteous, he declares them to be righteous. To the contrary, in justification, God justifies the ungodly as faith is placed in Christ, who is the believing sinner's righteousness. The Word of God does not say that God declares righteous or justifies the righteous. The Bible says that God justifies the ungodly. It says this in Romans 4, verses 4 and 5. Now to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. So if we work for our salvation, if we can add any good works to our salvation, God owes us that salvation. It's a debt we've earned. But if we don't work, if we cannot work at all, it is of grace, which is in fact of the case. But verse 5 says, But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Now, again, understand when it says his faith is counted for righteousness, it's not saying his faith in and of itself is counted for righteousness. What he's saying is, his faith in God, his faith in Christ. And so the object of the faith and the righteousness which God has is accounted for righteousness to him. The issue is here, as we look at this uh, matter of justification by faith alone, the issue is the once and for all act of the imputation of Christ's righteousness, not the infusion of Christ's righteousness. Imputation versus infusion. That is, imputation being that God credits to us. He looks upon us 
as righteous through the righteousness of Christ. Not because uh, we are infused in our own persons with that righteousness. If that were the case, we would be glorified and sinless at the point, I mean, our person would be sinless at the point of justification. But we know from the scripture and from experience that is not the case. Justification is, as, was, as I just mentioned, a once and for all act on God's part. It is not a repeatable act. It is once and for all. Once a person is declared righteous by God, it is never again to be repeated because God is the one who upholds that person's faith. See, two things would have to take place for a person to fall from that state of justification. Either right, uh, the righteousness of Christ would have to become tarnished, changed in some way, because that's the righteousness that's imputed to us, or we would have to be removed from this relationship because we no longer believe in Jesus Christ. And we know the first can't occur. Christ will remain. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. His righteousness will forever remain the same. The second can't occur because it is God who causes us to per persevere in the faith. Having begun in the faith, we will persevere by His grace. He guarantees it that all who come to Him, that is, all who believe in Him, He will not lose one. He will raise that one. He'll raise every one of them up on the last day. And so He assures us of that being the case. So therefore... Justification is a once and for all act. And that relationship before God, that, that state before God, I should say, uh, is uh, unchangeable. We, if we could ever be viewed outside of the righteousness of Christ, we would be damned. We would perish immediately. But we cannot be. That's the glory of our justification. And we ought to think and dwell on that every day. We ought to spend time praising God for the fact that we have been declared righteous by God. <clears throat> justification then places the believer in a state before God in which he can never be more acceptable to God than he already is, nor can he ever be less acceptable to God than he already is. For his righteousness or his acceptance before God is only and always on the basis of Christ's righteousness, which cannot be improved upon, nor can it be tarnished. And that's why we find in Romans chapter 8, Verse 30 through 34, these words. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. There is this chain, this unbreakable chain from predestination before the foundation of the earth to calling, to justification, to glorification. And the same ones that he predestinated before the world began are the same ones who are called, effectually called, 
are the same ones who are justified, are the same ones who are glorified in the end. Not one is lost. Unbreakable chain. And that's why Paul can go on to say in verse 31, What shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Dear ones, this is the only foundation upon which biblical sanctification, which is what we're going to talk about next, this is the only foundation upon which biblical sanctification can truly grow, can truly occur. All right, the next point then as to what does the sixth term of communion teach. The sixth term of communion secondly teaches sanctification by the word and by the spirit. Now I will begin this point by considering the differences between justification and sanctification as is found in question 77 of the larger catechism. So we'll look at the differences between justification and sanctification and that will help us, I think, better to understand what sanctification is. We'll talk briefly about that. But listen to this uh, uh, question and answer. Wherein do justification and sanctification differ? The answer, although sanctification be inseparably joined with justification, that being all of those who are justified will be sanctified. There aren't any who are justified who are not being sanctified. That doesn't happen in God's economy. That's not the way God has decreed and uh, works this whole matter of salvation out. The uh, catechism says they're inseparably joined together. Yet, they differ in that God in justification imputeth the righteousness of Christ. Again, you're going to see this difference between imputation and infusion. In sanctification, His Spirit infuseth Grace imputeth righteousness, infuseth grace, and enableth to the exercise thereof. In other words, in sanctification, the Spirit of God infuses grace and enables the Christian to, to grow, to be sanctified, to grow in his knowledge of Christ, to overcome sin, to put to death the old man, these types of things. God, uh, by his spirit, gives the Christian the grace to do so by infusing him with great grace. That's one distinction. 
Okay, a second. In the former, that is in justification, sin is pardoned. See, there are two primary acts in justification. Our sins are pardoned, forgiven by God, and then Christ's righteousness is imputed to us. So it says, in the former, that is in justification, sin is pardoned. In the other, that is in sanctification, it is subdued. In sanctification, God is in the process of subduing, in subduing the sin within us. That's another distinction. A third, the one, that is justification, doth equally free all believers from the revenging wrath of God and that perfectly in this life that they never fall into condemnation. That's true of justification. That applies to all believers. It's the same in all believers that they are freed from the revenging wrath of God. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And it's perfect in this life. Justification doesn't grow. It's a finished act. It occurs once and it's perfect in that one act. It doesn't change or it's not altered. It doesn't grow. It doesn't diminish. It's the same. It's perfect in this life and they never fall into condemnation. Now, the other, that is in sanctification, is neither equal in all. Not all Christians are at the same level of sanctification. There are degrees, there are different stages of sanctification in all believers. That's different from justification, which is the same in all. And it goes on to say concerning sanctification, nor in this life perfect in any. Whereas justification is perfect in all who believe, sanctification is not perfect in anyone who lives in this life. But growing up to perfection, that's the goal, but none reach it in this life. They're growing toward perfection. Gradual growth toward perfection in Christ. And what is true of believers, we might say, uh, what we've just read is certainly true of churches as well. And so we we believe that uh, churches corporately are being sanctified. The church of Jesus Christ is being sanctified Uh, in other words, uh, through the ages, that uh, it is growing in ever greater uh, conformity. This doesn't mean that it doesn't backslide, just like it doesn't mean that a Christian who's being sanctified does not backslide. We do backslide. We do fall into sin. We do fall from the truth. That's not the ideal, that's not what we hope and pray for, but that is the reality nevertheless. And it happens in churches as well. They do backslide, they do fall from the truth, they do err. 
The sanctification is produced not by the power of man, but is a work of the Holy Spirit. A gracious work of the Holy Spirit in the life of Christians and in the life of churches. Now, to say that it's a work of the Holy Spirit, we don't want to go have people think that man is not involved at all in this work, that he can just sit there and wait for the Holy Spirit to move his, his hands and his feet and his, open his mouth and everything else. Um, that he's just to be like a, a piece of clay uh, uh, sitting there until God actually picks him up and moves him. That's not the case at all. Uh, <clears throat> the scripture teaches that we are to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. That is this work of sanctification. We're to work that out with fear and trembling. But as we read in the, in the Word of God, we realize that it's, when that happens, it's really not, uh, we can't give man the credit as to say that it's man that's doing so, even when man does work out his own salvation with fear and trembling, because the very next verse, this is Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13, I might as well just read the verse 12 and then read verse 13, uh, it says, Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, so this is an area of sanctification, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, Paul is not saying to them, uh, seek to be justified on the basis of your works. I mean, that would contradict everything else that Paul has said in the rest of the Scripture. What he is saying, however, work out your own salvation in the sense of sanctification with fear and trembling. Then the next verse says, however, now this takes all of the boasting out of the sails, all the wind out of the sails of man, for it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do His good pleasure. And so whose work ultimately is it? It is the work of the Holy Spirit. And so when you desire to be faithful, when you desire to put to death the deeds of the flesh, when you desire to be obedient to God's commandments, you can't pat yourself on the back and say, you know, look what I've done. It's the work of the Holy Spirit at he is the one who is working in you. And so he receives all the glory and the credit for that. And yet, God rewards us for faithfulness in that area. He performs the work through us and he still rewards us for it. And the blessings and the graciousness of God. So this is, when it speaks of in the uh this term of communion, it talks about adorning the doctrine of God our Savior. This is adorning or making the gospel of Jesus Christ beautiful by our words and our deeds. That's how we make the doctrine of Christ beautiful, through our words and our deeds. This is what is taught in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. 
Now, this is what the grace of God that brings salvation teaches. Verse 12, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. And so, the grace of God is not intended to stop at justification. The grace of God teaches us to be sanctified as well. Now, this this uh, robe of sanctification that, and this process that, the, that individual Christians in, in the Church of Christ uh, are moving through uh, may not be beautiful in the eyes of the world, but it will be truly beautiful to Christ who is the husband of the church. This is, this is the glorious garment with which we are clothed as his bride these works and deeds of, of uh, holiness are beautiful to the Lord. And, uh, and he delights in that. <clears throat> now, it must be emphasized, as I said earlier, that sanctification is not optional in the life of the Christian. A Christian cannot say, well, uh, one Christian cannot say, well, I want to be sanctified and, and uh, that uh, he is being sanctified. Uh, and the other Christian or the other professing Christians say, I'm, I don't desire to be sanctified and I'm not going to be sanctified and he's not sanctified. There's no such thing uh, in the life of a Christian where there is not uh, sanctification. Christians may fall, indeed, they may fall into sin, but no Christian is without sanctification. There is no such thing as a carnal Christian who makes a profession of faith and yet never grows in Christ. There's no such thing as a carnal Christian who never grows in Christ. 1 Thessalonians 4.3 teaches with regard to this matter of sanctification as to is it optional in the life of the Christian? For this is the will of God even your sanctification that ye should abstain from fornication. The will of God is your sanctification. And then furthermore, in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14, much more clearly stated, I think, follow peace with all men and holiness. That's sanctification. Holiness comes from the same root in the Greek language. Follow peace with all men and holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. No man shall see the Lord without sanctification. Now, some are taken, some are taken as the thief on the cross, you know, very soon after uh, a conversion. Uh, but nevertheless, in the time that that person lived, there was growth in Christ. Now, it may not... The longer that a person lives, certainly there are more opportunities for uh, growth in Christ. But there is sanctification in the life of all Christians. 
Now, because sanctification in this life is gradual and partial, we must not allow the enemy, listen closely, we must not allow the enemy to cast us into a sea of discouragement or despair over our own small progress in sanctification or the small progress of sanctification in the life, lives of others or in the life of the church. We should not allow Satan to discourage or cast us into some sea of despair. Now, consider the testimony of the saints in Scripture. And I'll just uh, briefly mention a few of the, the saints, notably in this whole regard. And I don't mention their their sins in order to glory in their sins, but to help us to see that even the saints, those who were in the uh, in the uh, hall of fame with regard to faith, in Hebrews chapter uh, 11, were very weak men in certain areas that they did fall, uh, they did sin, they did err, they had their troubles as well. Abraham, you remember. God had given him a promise that, uh, that uh, he would have an heir and that uh, his wife would, uh, would uh, uh, bring forth this heir. And uh, he did not uh, uh, trust the Lord uh, at that point, but rather tried to work this whole situation out uh, through his uh, concubine, actually it was uh, uh, Sarah's uh, servant, and Sarah gave the servant to Abraham as a concubine. So they're both at fault. But uh, Abraham, uh, I believe, uh, faltered at that particular point with regard to the promise of God. Very clear. God spoke to him, told him what this promise was, but yet he tried to use human means to accomplish what God said would be uh, supernatural. Uh, how about Lot? Uh, the nephew of Abraham who, who chose the more prosperous, lush uh, area near Sodom and Gomorrah and eventually moved right in uh, to town with, uh, with those in Sodom and Gomorrah. And yet we find in Second uh, uh, Peter, I believe, that it says that, uh, that the soul of that righteous man, Lot, was vexed while he was living there calls him a righteous man, uh, yet he was vexed. What was he doing living in Sodom and Gomorrah? It wasn't for a fellowship, uh, I can guarantee, a Christian fellowship. Or you can think of uh, Jacob and his uh, deception, certainly at his mother's suggestion, but nevertheless following through with that. And yet uh, Jacob... Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, these are the fathers of the faith. Jacob deceiving his father Isaac. Moses, very clearly disobeying the Lord by striking the, the rock and uh, when he was to speak to that rock. And for that sin, and because of the public nature of that sin, uh, the scandal of that sin and offense, uh, he was kept from uh, entering into the promised land. Or Samson, one of the greatest of the prophets, and his trouble uh, with fornication. 
Or David, who was a man after God's own heart. And adultery and compounded uh, that sin with murder. Or Peter, in his denial, three times, denied the Lord. Or Thomas, who refused to believe that the Lord Jesus Christ was raised from the dead until he actually saw the wounds. Or how about the struggles of the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 7? Romans chapter 7. Let's uh, just look at a few of these verses. Verse 14, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For that which I do I allow not. For what I would, that do I not. For what I hate, that do I. If then I do that which I would not, I consent unto the law that it is good. Now then it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. For I know that in me that is in my flesh dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. For the good that I would I do not, but the evil which I would not, that I do. Does that sound familiar? Now if I do that I would not, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. I find then a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man. But I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. And I, I warn all of us at this particular point as well <clears throat> to not look upon the covenanters as being perfect people. It's very easy to look upon them as well. To look upon certain individuals, to look upon them as a group. They were not perfect people. They, like the other saints we have mentioned, struggled with sin and their members. They were going through the same things that you and I go through. This is not only your lot in life, but has been the sad lot of all Christians through the ages. We must never forget that. Now, that is not to excuse us of our sin. We must not rationalize it away, make excuse for our sin in no way. But it is to show us our own desperate need of Christ and His daily cleansing and our desperate need of the power of the Holy Spirit and the means of grace in our lives. In other words, our backsliding should drive us to Jesus Christ, not away from Jesus Christ. We ought not to make excuses and rationalize our sin so as to keep us from Christ, but when we see we sin, it ought to drive us that much more to Jesus Christ. Okay, thirdly, thirdly, the sixth term of communion teaches that our standard for sanctification is God's moral law revealed in the Old and New Testaments. 
talks about the commandments, all of the commandments. So this is God's moral law revealed in both Testaments. The ceremonial law of the Old Testament, according to our confession, and I believe this is the teaching of the Word of God, the ceremonial law of the Old Testament has been abolished by Christ, for it was full of shadows which pointed to the Lord Jesus Christ. Thus, since Christ has appeared, the shadows must disappear. The bodies appeared, the shadows disappear. And we see in Romans or I'm sorry, in Hebrews ten one, that all of these things of the Old Testament ceremonial law were indeed shadows. It says in chapter ten, verse one of Hebrews, for the law having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of the things can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the, the comers thereunto perfect. That's the ceremonial law. The judicial law of the Old Testament, according to our confession, expired with the expiration of the Jewish state, political state, kingdom, except for the general or moral equity of that law. For example, some of the judicial laws, and there are many, many of them, but the sabbatical or the Sabbath years, uh, part of the judicial law. The year of Jubilee, part of the judicial law. Uh, the sowing of different kinds of seed within a, wheel, uh, within a field or, or using different types of fabric within one garment uh, or uh, using um, an ox and an ass to, to grow or to uh, uh, plow uh, to, uh, in the same yoke. All of these things were forbidden, but they're part of the judicial law. Uh, furthermore, uh, well, that gives you, I think, uh, uh, an idea. There are many, many other examples we could use, but uh, those are judicial laws that have expired with the political state of the, of the Jews. Um, however, again, uh, within the judicial law, uh, there are... Uh, things that are moral that do uh, continue from the Old Testament into the New Testament. And so we need to keep that in mind as well. For example, uh, as it relates to the duties of the civil magistrate, uh, his duty is to promote the one true religion. He's not to allow pluralism within the, within the uh, uh, kingdom. Uh, this type of thing. This, this is... Um, uh, moral in nature. That's not limited to the uh, to the Old Testament. That is the duty and responsibility of uh, of a Christian civil magistrate. Um, uh, and we talked about covenanting, uh, national covenanting. That uh, is something that is uh, of a moral nature, not simply something that is limited to 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 the Jews. But we find in the New Testament as well that uh, the sins condemned by God's law in the New Testament are truce-breaking or covenant-breaking, implying that covenant-keeping and truce-keeping are moral requirements of God's law. <clears throat> now, the third category of law, then, is the moral law of God. The moral law of God does not alter or change from the Old Testament to the New Testament, 
Therefore, the Old Testament is as much a rule for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness as is the New Testament according to 2 Timothy 3.16. Both are equally inspired and therefore can be used for those purposes. We mentioned Romans 6.14. What are we to do with a passage like that which says, for ye are not under the law, but under grace? Well, in Romans 6.14, Paul is not teaching that we have no obligation to the moral law of God in the Old Testament. That's not the point. Uh, Paul is teaching that we are no longer uh, under the law as a covenant of works, which we must keep in order to uh, obtain our own salvation. We're no longer under the law as a covenant of works. Rather, we're, we're not under uh, a covenant of works. We're under now grace, under a covenant of grace. And we're under a covenant of grace because Christ has kept all of the law of God on our behalf. And that's the exact same truth that's being taught in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6, which is another passage that people often go to to try and show that we have no obligation to the law of God any longer to, to keep it. But uh, 2 Corinthians 3, 6 says, "...who also hath made us able ministers of the New Testament, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter killeth, but the Spirit giveth life." So people will point to this, well, the, the, the law, which is the letter, kills. But it's the Spirit, apart from the law, which gives life. <clears throat> well, again, this is saying the same thing as we just saw in Romans 6. The letter as a covenant of works kills. But the Spirit as a covenant of grace brings life. And so we're not under, again, that uh, under God's law as a covenant of works, but we are uh, under a covenant of grace. Rather, the Apostle Paul makes it clear that he does not abolish God's law. He rather says that he establishes the moral law of God in the Old Testament. When he says this in Romans 3.31, Do we then make void, that is empty, the law, that is the moral law of God, through faith? Does our trust in Jesus Christ make void and empty, do away with God's moral commandments to us. Do we have anything else to do with uh, God's moral commandments? Paul says, uh, uh, with regard to that question, do we then make void the law through faith? God forbid. Yea, we establish the law. We establish the, the moral law of God. Fourthly, the sixth term of communion teaches that the ordinances of Christ are to be obeyed and are means of grace. It talks about keeping the commandments and ordinances. And so we want to talk about the ordinances for just a moment. The ordinances which Christ has given to His church are those only which He has authorized in His Word for our edification and growth and grace. Uh, the ordinances related to worship. For example, these ordinances, the Sabbath, the reading, 
preaching and hearing of God's word, prayer, the singing of psalms with grace in the heart, the administration of the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Now, this this, uh, term of communion, where it talks about commandments and ordinances, this, again, presupposes that worship is to be ordered according to God's revealed word, which, again, goes back to a previous, the third term of communion. With regard to worship, there is a divine right of worship. It presupposes that worship is to be ordered according to God's revealed word, not according to man's preferences. The ordinances of God, really, in Scripture you find uh, uh, in the Psalms and various places and prophets, uh, you find the, the, the expression, the face of God, appearing before the face of God. You see, the ordinances are the face of God to his people. We meet with God, we commune with God face to face in his ordinances. That's how we meet with the Lord. We commune with him face to face through his ordinances. Those things that he has ordained that we are to use as means of grace and growth in Jesus Christ. Okay, fifthly, I just have one more after this. Fifthly, the sixth term of communion teaches that a blameless life is one that is kept free of public scandal. When it talks about the word blameless there in that term of communion, that we're to live blamelessly, it refers to a life that's free of public scandal. It doesn't mean, again, perfection. Blameless refers to a scandal-free life. Um, A blameless walk is not a perfect walk, but is rather a life which does not publicly bring offense to the name of Christ by a flagrant and unrepentant disregard for the commandments of God, either by one's life or by one's doctrine. We see you know, such a scandalous situation in 1 Corinthians 5.1, where this man is living with his stepmother, with his father's wife. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5.1, with regard to how well known this this was amongst the uh, the uh, community at large, it says it is reported commonly that there is fornication among you, and such fornication as is not so much as named among the Gentiles that one should have his father's wife. And so this is a public scandal. This is not living a blameless life, but rather a scandalous life. This term of communion is not teaching that in order to come to the Lord's Supper, a member must be perfect. It's not teaching that in order to come to the Lord's Supper, a member cannot have sinned in private, sinned in his family, sinned in the church, at work, or anywhere else. It's not teaching that that he cannot have sinned. It's emphasizing that a scandalous life, one that's lived in flagrant and unrepentant sin, is one which will keep one from coming to the Lord's Supper. But uh, repentance, restitution, and seeking forgiveness from our neighbor and from the Lord is always the means by which to be free of a scandalous life. And so dealing with that sin, even if it is of a public nature, removes the offense, removes the, the scandal. Once we repent, we make restitution, we seek God's forgiveness, we seek the forgiveness of others, then 
that's not a scandal of life any longer. We've dealt with it as best as we can under the circumstances and we're still responsible for the sin we committed, but it's not doesn't fall in that category of a scandalous life. And finally, the sixth term of communion teaches that a Christian is to be a witness with an ongoing historical testimony. We talked about historical testimony last week and we talked about it primarily in the sense of past uh, history, a past historical testimony. But uh, we want to make this, uh, make this known before we close. Not only is historical testimony that which is in the past, but that which is in the present. Your life, dear ones, your life daily bears witness to the Lord Jesus Christ. You are daily on the witness stand before the world, before the Savior, giving testimony and witness to the truth of Jesus Christ. The only question is, what kind of testimony is your life bearing for Jesus Christ? All right. That finishes our, completes our six terms of communion now. I wonder, do you have any questions on the study this evening? Anything come to mind? Like clarification, observation you'd like to make, uh, anything of that nature? Mike? Yeah, you mentioned that uh, the Roman Catholic view of justification uh, is that there's an infusion of righteousness into the individual. Mm-hmm. How does that relate to the Wesleyan concept of justification? Do the Wesleyans believe you're infused with righteousness as well? Um, I believe that their view of justification is a Protestant view except for the fact that they believe that justification can be lost because faith can be lost. And so, uh, it's not a justification that is once and for all, but is a justification that can be repeated. But it is uh, uh, an imputation, uh, and so um, not an infusion. Any other questions? Murray? A public sin, that I want to clarify, is that of a necessity of public scandal or not? Or is it just on the nature of the sin that determines the scandal? Yeah, it, it depends upon uh, the flagrancy, obstinacy of the sin that's committed, how widely it's known, um, uh, whether it's uh, a sin that's unrepented of. Uh, several factors enter into that, uh, you know, as far as a scandal. Thank you for your attention and your questions. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, 
containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle is adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.